0: Kuzu Zhangpo, you're listening to Bhutan Dialogues, a platform to discuss ideas and issues in development. Bhutan Dialogue is a joint initiative of the Loden Foundation and the United Nations in Bhutan held every second Thursday of the month in Tempo. Our host for this session is Dr. Karma Punso, the founder and the president of Loden Foundation, and the case is Mr. Michael Field, the Vice Dean and an Associate Professor of Law at Jimmy Senge Wangchu School of Law in Tawa to discuss. Law is a story we tell each other in talk. This dialogue has three part. Mr. Savanti Helms, the head of office of World Food Program in Bhutan, will introduce a session followed by the conversation with the guests. The session ends with a q and with a live audience.
1: Kusum and welcome to your UN house, can you hear me? I'm not quite sure whether the mic is working, otherwise I'll speak even louder. Bhutan Dialogues is an open space for dynamic conversations on issues of national interest and with the objective to listen, share and refine our ideas in pursuit of social progress. Since the last session in January, we have had the launch of Bhutan Dialogues website and social media posts. On the website, you will find our past sessions in both video and podcasts. And we will continue to update this website so that everyone has access to all of the sessions. In addition, we hope that this, that through this platform, we can reach out to all the educational institutions and citizens around the country. Coming back to our theme for today, which is Law is a story we tell each other in the dark. It's to me it sounds like the beginning of the Mafia movie where you have two old Sicilian dons that sit next to each other trying to scare each other with dark tales of the long arm of the law. <clears throat> law is a subject matter of fascinating interest, but very few have made the attempt to tell the story of law. Law is the microcosmic history of humanity as it concerns every human being. Upon law, what we call rights are founded, and by its wrongs are forbidden. Our speaker today is Mr. Michael kill On a cold day in November 2012, Michael heard a story. <laughs> it was about a king who had invented a concept called gross national happiness, and who, years later, determined that his absolute monarchy was inconsistent with the concept of gross national happiness. That in order to be truly happy, his people needed self-determination. In a move perhaps unprecedented in history, this king set aside the absolute monarchy in favor of a constitution. The story concluded with an invitation. This great king's son, now king and himself a visionary, had determined that a young democracy requires lawyers, judges, and professionals. And he asked Michael, will you be willing to come and help us build Bhutan's first law school? Michael came, and here he is. <laughs> and he is the first vice dean and a professor of law at the Jigme Singye School of Law. Welcome, Michael. Our host, Dr. Karma Funso has twofold focus to his work. He is a disruptive thinker and a social worker. As an academic, he has been engaged to document and write about Bhutan's fast disappearing cultures. After nine years, heading up a project to digitize Bhutan's sacred manuscripts. And he began six years ago to recall the country's old traditions. Welcome, again, also mm-hmm. to you. <laughs> uh, at the end of this session, you will have the opportunity to ask speakers questions. Uh, and may I suggest uh, that you keep it short and sweet, and chi- tweet size. And if you have longer questions, we will have tea afterwards, where you can engage with the speakers. Uh, I will also ask you to put your phone on silent, while we are having our conversation up here. Now, after the tea, I would like to invite people to come back in here. We have with us Mr. Namka Gelsen, the founder of Transcend Artisan, a business which deals in the creation of aesthetic appeal, a company that manufactures stunning pieces of woodwork as a blend of traditional art and modern design. And Mr. Namker who is sitting here in front of me, will be speaking on entrepreneurship <laughs> opportunities and on the fine art of turning an idea into reality. I hope you will all enjoy the session. Thank you and appreciate you that.
0: So welcome to the 16th edition of Bhutan Dialogues. Um, it's a great pleasure to have you here because uh, law is one area which we haven't touched yet And it's an area that I know very little or almost nothing about. Uh, It is, in my case, a story in the dark. So I'm really uh, hoping to learn a lot from you. This forum, we hope, is a a space for people to um, have the power of curiosity, to ask, to learn, to think critically in a very civil fashion. So we say it's a, a space for civil conversations to stretch the boundaries of our thinking and speech. Um, And what we do, we style this on uh, Christa Tippett's radio program called On Being in the US, which you may be familiar with, and try to weave the personal and the professional lives of people and relate that to the uh, important issues we face in society. So to begin with, I would like to ask you how you got into law, this story in the dark. Uh, Can you tell us how? Very quickly, what inspired you to get into law and what you have been doing? Sure.
2: Well, thank you very much, first of all, for having me. And, and thanks, to, uh, thanks to everyone for coming, uh, including a good turnout from our own JSW Tribunal.
3: <laughs>
2: My father was a law enforcement official. He was a Fed, as we say in the US. And so he, he, we traveled around the country with him, moving from place to place um, as he chased bad guys and some really, really bad guys. And so I grew up, um, as, we, as many of us do, as most of us do, revering my, my parents. And so I viewed the law as a child, as a machine or a monolith by which bad guys go in, and punishment comes out.
3: <laughs> well, as I got older, and as I
2: started studying history, as I started um, you know, meeting more people, and as I, uh, as I traveled the world, I realized that there's a lot more to law, that law is in the warp and woof of everything we do in civilization. That law is a way that we communicate our civilized tendencies or our values to each other. And it's a way that we codify or memorialize that ongoing social, economic, and cultural conversation. And so I was a math student right up until 21 years old. And so I was a problem solver. And at some point, I said to myself, uh, you know what, the problems that I'm looking to solve aren't solved through math, aren't solved through the hard sciences, they're solved through law. And so, in a nutshell,
0: that's, that's how I got where I am. Well, as a problem solver, you became a, an expert in law. Um, I, back in college, I have come across so many American colleagues of mine who would drop chemistry or theology mm-hmm. or whatever and go to law school. Is that because there's more. Uh, money in law or is it because America is a very religious society or what is the reason? I think all of the above. Uh, part of it, I just
2: view, so when an American asks me, when a Bhutanese asks me should I go to law school, I, I ask them as, as many of our students in the room, why do you want to be a lawyer? Why do you want to go to law school? Why do you want to join in the justice conversation? In America the question is very different it's, why do you want to go to law school? What problems do you want to solve? I found law school in America to be one of the most intellectually challenging things I ever did. You don't give up chemistry or biology or, uh, or the hard sciences when you go to law school, just as you don't give up history <coughs> or economics or anything else. You take those things that you've learned and you weave them into the law. And so that's, where, that's how intellectual property lawyers are born. That's how uh, commercial lawyers are born. You know, you have to be an expert not just in law, but you have to be an expert in soft skills, you have to be an expert (coughs) in sciences, you have to be an expert in business. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, I think it takes a certain kind of person to turn their back on the laboratory and say, I want to be a chemist who does law, or I want to be a biologist who does law. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of how I've always viewed myself, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm still that little math nerd, Mm -hmm. but I also do law. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, that's very interesting to know. So, law in a way is cross cutting across other academic disciplines. Now, uh, on the same note, now rule of law, legal identity, uh, access to justice is so important across the entire spectrum of development and this is a forum for development and refining our ideas of development. But you consider st- or you phrase law as a story we tell in the dark. Uh, can you explain further? I mean, what do you mean by that? Sure. The metaphor
2: here is, you know, we've never left the campfire. You know, we are still the same uncivilized cavemen that we were not so long ago. And so, you know, the eight of us or the ten of us or those of us in our little village, in our little community, sit around the campfire and we tell each other, I believe in you. You know, I, we tell each other, um, if you get up and go into the woods to get more wood for the fire, I will come with you. I will protect you. And you trust me. And that's what we do, because what's behind us, if one of us walks out of the conversation and, s- and says, I don't care to participate anymore, or I don't share your values, or whatever, what's behind us are the wolves. What's behind us are uh, all of the threats, is the dark. The and it was modern- the bad guys. Yeah, the wolves are the bad guys, yeah. I mean, to to us, without sticks, or without fire, or without guns, or anything, oh yeah, wolves are definitely the bad guys. Wolves bite. <laughs> uh, the, um, but, In the modern era, it's still a conversation. You know, we here in Timpu talk to each other and we say, you know, I will protect your children if they come to my law school. You know, and and the parents trust me. Uh, We say, if I give you some money, you will come paint my house. We say, if some man beats you up, then the police will will arrest him and he will see justice. And the reason we kept telling each other this story is behind us is uncivilization. Behind us is extinction. there's genocide out there in the dark. There's war crimes out there in the dark. There is, there is injustice out there in the dark. And so it is vitally important that we sit around the campfire mm-hmm. and we keep communicating mm-hmm. to each other that I trust you, you trust me. Here are the values we share and here are the rules to sit around our tiny campfire. Mm-hmm. And this is how we keep the dark at
0: bay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so if we are creating law and legal framework, uh, through mutual agreements, through consensus. I mean, how do we then, for instance, in the case of Bhutan, we create that story? Should it be embedded in the Bhutanese social cultural context, or should it rely more on the international universal norms? I, the, I mean, certainly the universalists, I mean, that's,
2: that's UN House, right? I mean, by having UN House here, Bhutan has, Bhutan has said to the United Nations and has said to the international consensus, you have a place at our campfire and we want to listen to you. But we can never forget that it is Bhutan's campfire. Mm-hmm. You know, We have hundreds of these communities around the world. Um, you know, Where my wife and I used to live, we had the St. Louis campfire, so to speak. We would talk to each other and say, these are our values. And they may be different than Bhutan, or even New York City, or London, or Chicago. But you invite other people in constantly, because you say, tell us what's going on in your campfire.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, tell us what you've learned from doing this longer, or doing it better, or doing it worse, but we can never forget that the campfire must be Bhutanese. So in the end, we listen, we take in the ideas, and then we, we continue the conversation amongst ourselves and say, OK, that was interesting. Now, how can we make that work for our conversation? So I would say never shut out the international consensus, whatever that might be. But by the same time, you never take it, you never take it without, without a grain of salt. And you never take it without First, digesting it through, mm. through the Bhutanese conversation.
0: So, with your exposure to uh, the legal frameworks outside of Bhutan and then your um, deep insight and knowledge of Bhutan's legal system, how much of localization or contextualization do we need to do with our uh, legal systems? Uh, how much of it is sort of borrowed from outside and adapted without, or adopted rather, without? enough adaptation? Oh, I would say
2: we can all look at that and figure that out for ourselves in that the ones that don't work Mm. tend to be the borrowed ones. Mm. And so we look at things like uh, the Contracts Act, we look at things like, uh, oh, some of the things on children (coughs) protection, domestic violence, this kind of Mm. thing. And oftentimes the parts that cause the most consternation within Bhutan and the most conflict are the ones that are simply borrowed from someplace else, mm. either through the good offices of the United Nations mm. or because some enterprising young parliamentarian mm. Googles and, uh, mm. and says, well, we need, a, we need a Right to Information Act. Let's borrow this one from India. Mm. And I mean, in my mind, that's one of the reasons Bhutan doesn't have a Right to Information Act, for mm. example, is because we have yet to Bhutanize the idea of Right to Information. Mm. And so mm. I would say Bhutan needs to do more of it. If we look back at what happened before the constitution and before the constitutional process, mm. there was a lot of this. You know, experts would be handpicked mm. and sent off and told mm. we need a penal code. Mm. And they would sit together and they'd go back and forth and sure they'd draw from other countries, but they'd also draw from trimjun Chenmo, they draw draw from uh, they draw from the Buddhist teachings, they draw from everything. And if you want the best example of that, you look at the constitution. Mm. You know, the international agencies and the international uh, participants weren't even allowed into the campfire on that constitutional question until well into the process. Mm.
0: So I would say the answer is Bhutan needs more and that it's vitally important. Laws that uh, you think were uh, primarily um, borrowed or uh, brought from outside and then the chim -chim -chim chemo you say is a good example of how we have created something at home. Um, talking about this, I actually was struck by the two examples you mentioned. When right to information act, uh, I would say this this whole culture of access to information is pretty new in Bhutan, so we can't expect too much from our legal experts to sort of draw something from grounds up. But uh, on child protection issues like this statutory rape and you know um, rape uh, of minor above twelve to eighteen. I still don't know the logic, the rationale behind 18 being fixed as the age of consent. Uh, What's the international? uh, There is no international standard.
2: And and this is what I'm talking about. This is one of the risks of not having the Bhutanese conversation first, right? Um, Of the 200 plus jurisdictions on Earth, Fewer than 60 of them have an 18-year-old right of cons- uh, um, age of consent.
3: Mm.
2: Almost all of those countries are parties to the Child Rights Convention. Mm. There is no international <coughs> consensus, and 18 is a magic age in some Western countries, mm. but 21 is a magic age. In Portugal, age of consent is 21. Mm. Um, so there is no international consensus. There are NGOs out there that are trying to push this magic number or another. You know, 18 is a very <coughs> popular one. I'm not saying that the number should be 17 or 16 or 19 or 20. What I'm saying is Bhutan should not have adopted an arbitrary number from outside mm. without first having a conversation. Mm. And we saw it in, in the newspapers and on social media here over the last five years. Mm. Anytime there's an arrest, mm. the struggle within the communities to say, but we've always done it that way. Why are the police getting involved? Mm. And the police quite rightly say, all we can do is enforce the law. We don't have discretion on... We don't have discretion to to let somebody go. The law says what it says, and you know, that should have been processed through the Bhutanese conversation, and then maybe you add a Romeo and Juliet proviso. Um, you familiar with these? The Romeo and Juliet proviso that if, that. 18, explain, exactly, 18, is the, 18 is the magic number, mm. but if Romeo is 17 and Juliet is 16, we don't prosecute. Mm. You know, so that, or if Romeo is 18 or 19 and Juliet is 18 or 17, we don't prosecute. And it says that if the two of them are close enough together, that there's nothing wrong with it. Mm. And, that's, and that's fine, but that's also there's nothing magical about a Romeo and Juliet clause mm. either. That's a question of what works for Bhutan. Mm. All the international consensus tells us is we must protect children. We must, pre- and and you know, the magic ages are 12 and 15 mm-hmm. under the under the Child Rights Convention. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, we should protect children. And then it's how do you protect? How do you best protect children within your own national or subnational cultural context? Mm-hmm. So.
0: Yeah. Uh, are there enough conversations going on then uh, around the Putin's uh, campfire to uh, repeal or amend these laws? I think the child protection one; the age has been reduced from eighteen to sixteen. If I there's a correct.
2: there's a sixteen seventeen thing going on if they're both within sixteen and seventeen uh, in the in the penal code amendment, but it's still eighteen. So if I'm if I'm nineteen and you're, or if I'm twenty one and you're eighteen, or whatever, you're you're still on the hook, um, as far as I know, unless something's changed. I'm looking at my students. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but uh, uh, the, the more critical question is, uh, do we have a, a civic discourse, a critical uh, sort of discourse going on to revise some of these relevant or uh, 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 unapplicable laws? Well, uh, you work at the, the premier college of law, so If you're not doing it, probably it's not happening.
2: Right. I I think certainly, and I'm looking for support among my colleagues here, I think certainly on our campus there is, and in our classrooms (coughs) there is. And looking at social media, looking at the newspapers, and talking to our friends and colleagues here in Bhutan, I suspect the conversations are going on. The problem is, and this is why I chose this title for this conversation, um, I suspect that people like I used to tend to view the law as a monolith that a law is something that judges give us or that Parliament gives us and that we play no part in except to follow, to vote once every five years and perhaps run for Parliament ourselves. And that's just not how it, hap- that's not how it happens. Law follows the social discourse. And so what we're missing here in Bhutan is not the discussions, because those are happening. We, we see those everywhere. What's happening is the connection between those discussions and the law. You know, mm-hmm.
0: st- We should have campaigns and lobbies to, to revise these laws? Oh, uh, don't use do you the word lobbyist with an American. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, how can w- we practically take it from a civil conversation like this one? Of course, we need to have even more conversations like this one, I think. I personally don't think there's enough happening at the moment. Mm-hmm. But how do you translate that into an active uh, sort of campaign to change things in real terms?
2: I would, I would love to see more members of parliament in this room. And in rooms like this around Timbu. I'd like to see more judges in in this room and in in places like this room. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see them sitting where I'm sitting and defending what they believe. But I'd also like them sitting in the first or second row Mm -hmm. listening to one of our students or listening to uh, one of the active entrepreneurs in the country uh, saying, and this is what's wrong. Mm -hmm. And not just in the context of the campaign. And then we should be pulling that group together and saying, boy, these these 12 or 13 people have really thoughtful comments. And you know, Dr. Karma, could you lead a task force to just come up with, you don't have to write legislation. Mm. What we'd like is start telling us what the points around which consensus exists and why this consensus differs from what we're doing in the law right now. And that's certainly something we're trying to do at the law school. When we teach contracts or torts or criminal law or whatever, the microphone is always turned over to the students to say, okay, you've seen how they do it in India, or you see how it's been done to this point in Bhutan, is that right? You know, and if not, you know, don't just tell me it's wrong, and don't just complain on, on social media, but tell me how it could be made better. And if that involves pulling this piece from the Indian example, or this piece from the American example, great, but tell me why it would work in Bhutan. You know, I'm, I'm very practical, I'm very pragmatic, and in my experience, the only way to find the answers to those questions, is to keep talking, is to have that
0: conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we talk, but we then don't. the talk must translate into action somehow, and uh, Absolutely. there must probably be some civic citizens' uh, initiative to maybe campaign to write to the parliamentarians to uh, repeal the law, or... or oh, sure, but, but, you know,
2: like a lot of things in life, a petition is worth the paper it's written on and nowadays we don't even do with change.org and things like this, we don't even put it on paper, so it's not even worth the paper it's written on. So it's not about collecting 20,000 signatures, it's about having conversations like this, or better yet, having six or seven of us sitting around here, and no audience, and we sit around and we say, all right, now that we've figured out what's wrong, let's win by reason, not by numbers. I mean, we get to win by numbers every five years, that's why that's why we have elections. Um, <coughs> But this is winning by reason. This is saying, these, these are the things we've discovered that are wrong with the contract act or with the penal code or whatever. Why are they wrong? Well, because they don't work for Bhutan. They don't work for the seven of us around this table. Now, let's go over and talk to this table over here and see if it's working for them. Well, it's not for them either. Well, now we've got a conversation that they're bringing in things we never thought of, I don't know, either from a different economic perspective or a different social perspective or, or what have you. Now we've starting to come up here a conversation that may convince some people. And that is when you make sure that you've got judges and members of parliament and everyone else coming to the table as well. Because there's no, there's no magic bullet in democracy. You know, It's not as though if we come up with, you know we have the referendum under the constitution, mm. but referendums can be manipulated, referendums can, uh, can make mistakes, so on and so forth. It's about winning
0: through the conversation and through building the consensus by reason, mm. not by numbers. But uh, are you suggesting then that uh, these discussions should be carried on mainly by the intelligentsia, the literati? In a democracy we have to go back to the masses as well, right? I, first of all, I don't believe in the masses. <laughs> I
2: don't don't you believe I don't in democracy? Is, I don't think there is such a thing as the masses. No, I love, I love people. Okay. I don't believe, there are two concepts I don't believe in. One is the common man. <laughs> I don't believe any of us are common. Um, <laughs> And the second is the masses. I, I think as soon as you point to something that you think is the masses, you discover the distinctions among them and the differences and so on and so forth. So, so I'm very leery of the concept of going back to the masses. Um, now, that being said, no, this conversation cannot be among the intelligentsia. Mm-hmm. With absolutely no offense to a yeah. Virginia-slash-Oxford-slash-blah-blah-blah, <laughs> blah, blah. Um, there comes a point where the intelligentsia do not n- no, are no longer able to... Um, reflect the fullness of the Bhutanese experience. You reflect one very important facet of that experience, mm-hmm. and you also bring to the table all of your experiences from around the globe and all of your connections. But that is one half or one tenth or one
0: percent of the Bhutanese experience. So, so no, it it should be all inclusive. Um, so this is the challenge. Uh, how do we have this inclusive conversation? Then we should lead to also uh, positive results in real terms. Uh, to really conduct this story, especially in a country like Bhutan, where I would bet that at least fifty percent of the population wouldn't have read any of the acts properly,
2: we don't need them to read the acts. I mean, that's law follows society. I don't, you know, it, our students come in, you know, during orientation, and they say to me, you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse, and therefore I will fix Bhutan by making sure everyone in the country has read all of the laws. And also, I don't care, you know, why do we not kill each other? It's not because the law says that that's homicide and you can be punished. Mm. It's because that's wrong. Mm. And why do we have a self-defense exception, where if you attack me, I can, I can defend myself? Mm. Not because the statute says that self-defense shall be reasonably executed, and mm. torts class, pay, uh, pay attention right now. <laughs> self-defense must be reasonable and proportional to an attack, and so on and so forth.
0: Nobody reads that. Mm.
2: We, we self-defend, or we defend our family, or we defend our houses, because that's right and if it weren't right it, it wouldn't and shouldn't be the law mm-hmm. and so why do 17 and 16 year olds get married in some parts of bhutan mm-hmm. because that's what works in their society mm-hmm. why in other countries is 18 a magic age because that's what's right in their society so i don't need mm-hmm. 7 lakhs human beings 8 lakhs human beings to have all studied law mm-hmm. in order to participate in that conversation we need to know what do you value what's important to you mm-hmm. and how is what's currently
0: codified, written down, and enforced not serving what you view as important? So you're bringing down to a sort of common understanding of issues in life, sort of common sense. Yeah, I mean, um, common sense. So, so now, uh, let me then uh, pose you this question. Um, this is something that I want to also figure out myself. On the one hand, we need to have these local stories to create a very, um, practical, contextual legal system. But on the other hand, uh, we also have to go with the basic human rights, basic notions of freedom. Um, mm-hmm. And we have Bhutan assigned to so many international conventions and treaties, and we have the obligation to be in uh, agreement with them. So um, if we were to focus so much on the local consensus, isn't that also destroying some basic rights of people. Like for instance in Saudi Arabia, I'm sure they'll say it's a local story, valid and real, to not allow women to drink, not allow women to drive, Should we respect that as a local story or should we still insist that that is a major violation of human rights? So first of all, who invited you to the Saudi Arabian campfire? Yeah. <laughs> no, but if we expand the campfire beyond Bhutan and beyond Saudi Arabia, let's make it a global campfire.
2: Well, okay. <laughs> so first of all, I'm not sure at this stage in human evolution, <coughs> in human social evolution, that it's proper for us to talk about a global campfire. I mean, I believe, I believe in my heart that mm-hmm. there's more that, that more similar among all of us than, mm-hmm. than different. That being said, you know, we can push universalism too fast and too far. Uh, I love what the U.N. is doing as an aspirational, mm-hmm. and I love what the Red Cross and all of these human rights groups, um, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, mm-hmm. what they're doing as an aspiration. Mm-hmm. But to impose those right here, right now, mm-hmm. on every single little campfire, mm-hmm. is to assume that we as humans have come a lot further than, than we actually have. Mm-hmm. We're not ready for a universal consensus on, to go back to our first example, on an age of consent Mm-hmm. because your society, Saudi Arabia says, if I'm not mistaken, any age as long as you're married. Mm-hmm. You know, Bhutan says 18, but they say we don't really like that. In the United States, we don't have a single age of consent. Each state has its own age mm-hmm. of consent. And for universalists to come in and say, and right here, right now, it's going to be 19 and a half years old, you mm-hmm. silly, it's taking the conversation, it's trying to expand the campfire too fast. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, a country like Bhutan um, should always keep a seat in the conversation for the dreamers, for the universalists, and for that matter, for the people with agendas. You know, the I mean, UN House is here for a number of wonderful things and also here because they'd really like us to ratify all those other human rights, you know, core human rights instruments. Mm. And they get very frustrated when Bhutan says, not yet, not so fast, so on and so forth. We're not ready uh, to adopt all of these. But that's no reason to say, at UN, you, you've said peace, not go home. Uh, it's a reason to say, let's talk about where we have commonalities, let's talk about the receptors in our society that might hook up with the values that you're telling us,
0: hopefully and optimistically,
2: that the rest of the world has already embraced.
0: Well, Michael, it's really refreshing for me to uh, listen to an American who is sort of dumbing down universalism. Thank God we have some Americans who think <laughs> that <they, they laughs> we don't have to follow American standards all the time. <laughs> um, but where, uh, where besides just two and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, jokes aside, um, we live in a highly globalized uh, time, right? So uh, I am totally for. Universal human rights, for instance, there are certain elements of our legal system or cultural practices that are shared globally. So, hasn't really the campfire expanded? But, but listen to the
2: order you said that in. Mm. You said there are certain aspects of our mm. uh, legal system that are shared globally. You didn't say there are certain global standards mm. that are shared by Bhutan. It grows out of that. Mm. Now, sometimes it is influenced, even heavily influenced. You know, the the Nuremberg crimes are being a great example of that. When a very wise person, you know, from somewhere else in the world, says, "Hey, what we're all really saying is, we need a prohibition on aggressive war, or we need a prohibition on crimes against humanity." Because what you're saying over here in the Muslim countries, and you're saying here in the Buddhist countries, and you're saying in the Christian countries, and you're saying in Canada, um, is that we is that none of us like Crimes against humanity, mm. and here is what we think they are, mm. and let's everybody you know sort of pick and choose and figure out if there is indeed this global consensus. Mm. But that needs to come from the ground up, mm. with people you know like the, hopefully the people in this room mm. surveying it and saying, "Hey, we're all saying the same thing. We're never going to agree on an age of consent, but what we all agree on is children must be protected." Mm. Now let's figure out how much we can drill down on that. And then, how much we can lobby each other's campfires? How much we can leave the Bhutanese campfire and walk over to Nepal or India or even the United States, and say, "And this is how we do it in Bhutan. Is are we are we getting any any traction here at your campfire?" And they said, "Well, come sit down. We'd like to hear what on earth you're doing. What on earth, you know? Gross national happiness is one of the one of the best examples of this. This is one where tiny Bhutan." suddenly had people all over the world saying come sit down what mm. on earth is this you know we've been running ourselves ragged on the treadmill mm.
3: come,
2: come sit down we mm. we're probably not going to adopt it It probably doesn't work here but we'd like to hear what you're doing
0: mm. thank you yeah so wonderful i mean it's a, um, it's being optimistic hoping that people will join in and uh, be part of one campfire uh, eventually I'm not quite sure whether al- Al-Qaeda and ISIS would still want to come to an uh, uh, American campfire. Sure. Uh, there may be other ways, of, like international legal instruments, to bring leaders of state, people of the state into
2: But a- ISIS and Al-Qaeda did. Mm-hmm. OK? <coughs> ISIS, what was the first thing ISIS did when they got themselves an army? They proclaimed a caliphate. They proclaimed themselves a state. Mm-hmm. That's a Westphalian uh, invention. That is a Western invention to say, we are a state that has, and um, go through it with me second years, that has a permanent population, a territory, the ability to conduct international relations. Um, the, uh, And that is a level of, you know, they were demanding recognition. They were demanding that states deal with them as a state. Uh, the Intifada in Palestine was, among other things, to create a Palestinian state. And so while, yes, the, the you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, uh, and vice versa, by the way, would not be willfully sitting down and saying, well, let's talk about McDonald's mm-hmm. and how we do have a consensus around how delicious Big Macs are. Mm-hmm. They will sit down and say, let's talk about statehood. Let's, mm-hmm. talk, about, let's talk about creating a space mm-hmm. where the United States cannot interfere in our internal territory mm-hmm. and about uh, stabilizing our position in the world so that we are free to live the way we want to live. Well, that's self-determination. Mm. And that is a very recent addition mm. to what you um, are hoping is this global conversation. Mm. Now, that's less than 100 years old. Uh, so, so no, there's, there, are, there are commonalities. Um, and, and we borrow from each other, sometimes unwittingly. Uh, so no, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's terribly optimistic to say that these conversations will cross from campfire to campfire. Mm. Um, It's just not going to happen as fast as you or I might hope it will, because otherwise the the host, so to speak, Mm -hmm. will reject the transplant. Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, let's uh, leave the universal approach uh, and uh, come back to uh, the ground here in Bhutan. Uh, Bhutan has created many stories around our campfire. There are about 126 uh, acts and amendment acts being passed. the, the National Law Review Task Force, I was reading the report and they have come up with uh, 15 acts that needs total repeal, 29 acts for amendments. That sounds like a, a huge number. What are our acts like? What, uh, you, have, you probably must have gone through most of them. Um, if you're looking at the local stories that we have created, are they consistent? Do they need serious uh, harmonization? Uh, what's the legal situation? Oh, they need serious harmonization. Mm.
2: I mean, the and our students at the law school and my colleagues at the law school. Every time we dig, every time we we look more closely at the law. I know the judiciary is seeing this. I know Parliament is seeing this. It it looks like everywhere we look, we're finding another place where, you know, the Commercial Sale of Goods Act mm. simply conflicts with the Contracts Act, mm. and there's no way to reconcile them. Mm. Um, where the Domestic Violence Protection Act or the Child Care Protection Act simply conflicts with local notions of how justice is supposed to be done. That doesn't mean that you throw one or the other out. It means that somebody very thoughtful and very appreciative of both His Majesty for coming up with the concept and the National Law Review Task Force for putting the months and months and months of work into it, but I suspect even they have scratched only scratched the surface. I mean, any time We try to enact a law, or for that matter, a regulation, without having the conversation first. Anytime we borrow from Andhra Pradesh, or from Kansas, or from New York State, or from Ontario, we are running the risk. In fact, we are guaranteed to conflict with any and all laws and practices which are an organic product Mm -hmm. of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So,
0: Uh, so This morning, uh, the front page of Kinsel carried a story of the conflict of... uh, laws between um, the forest and nature conservation act and the uh, mines and minerals act yeah. and the water act um, and, so, and several others. Uh, yeah. so you have several others to mention um, how do you proceed now w- when you work with your legal counterparts here your students and faculty members and the judges and lawyers here what practical active steps have been taken to address these issues sure. from, so, so for somebody like me who's from outside law Can you give a more accurate picture of Bhutan's legal situation? Sure. I mean, how do we
2: proceed? We need to proceed by starting and saying where is this conflict or this perceived conflict that you found? Okay, what outcome would we want? You know, we see that five different acts give us five different results. Are we happy with any of those results? If so, then, then we should build around that. If we're not happy with any of them, what is the result we We around our campfire, I'm avoiding saying we Bhutanese because I'm not, but um, what is the outcome we'd like? And then let's let's start from scratch. Mm -hmm. And, And when they say they need significant amendment, well, that's the same thing as saying they need repeal. We need to start from ground zero and say, if we've got this conflict, what result would Bhutan like to see on this one? And then let's build out, and let's see what other conflicts are encompassed or are taken care of once we've built out our regime of law to the limits of our national consensus or to the limits of our national conversation. So that's where I would start. And, and certainly in our classrooms, and I know in other tertiary education classrooms around, around the country, we are very practical about that. We say, we say to our students, we say to our colleagues, what should the outcome be? And if we have to borrow from other places that share our values, Mm. there's no sin in that, there's no crime in that. Mm. But it should
0: arise organically out of the results that we want to see. So let me ask you for this specific advice. I believe personally that the current election rules prohibiting religious persons from voting contradicts It conflicts with the constitutional right of every Bhutanese citizen. To vote. Now, the Constitution explicitly says every citizen has the right to vote, but we know in practice it's not that. So, if I were to to help reveal this rule and uphold the Constitution, <coughs> what would be the practical steps I have to take to get there? Well, so you've started just now mm-hmm. by
2: saying this in front of this room, in front of these people. <laughs> you have just started a conversation. First step. First step. That is step one.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, step two. You and I already know how the conversation starts. You say this is a fundamental human right to representation. The other side then replies, yes, but uh, to allow the members of the monastic body to vote is to create a power block that basically decides elections, because no monk would ever go against his." They would also say monks should be above politics. They should also say, well, the next step is to sit down with your thoughtful friends, and I know you've got a couple of them, Mm. and say, do we have an answer to those? Mm. Sometimes you don't. You know, the issue of gun control in the United States, the issue of abortion in the United States. Sometimes you just hit a wall and say, we simply have two irreconcilable values. Mm. Sure. But it may be, the case, and we'll come back to that, but it may be the case that you've got answers, mm. and that the you and your thoughtful friends have answers. Well, then you guys go back to your other campfires. You know, we all have multiple campfires. I have my legal community. I have my family. I have the Chile community here in Bhutan. Um, I have angry residents of Motitong because there's hotels going up all over <laughs> Motitong, um, you know. And each of those groups, I have parents of small children, I have whatever. Each of those groups then deserves that conversation, and so we all separate out and go back to our our campfires and we start talking. We then come back, and so this is, or should be, about ninety nine percent of the process. Okay, I mean most of the convers- most of it is the conversation. The point at which you have the answers, the point at which you're going out and you're hearing other campfires, perhaps that you've never even talked to, saying the same things back to you, that means your idea has caught fire. Not to confuse the metaphor. That means you, you are you are seeing a consensus building. That is the moment we then turn to Parliament or we turn to BNLI or we turn to the law school and say, we'd like to get some experts on this question. You know, what would such a law look like? We'd like to devote a Bhutan dialogues. To this question of should monks vote, and we'd like to have, you know, Dr. Carmel so talking to an opponent of this. Mm. Why? Because that's more interesting to us. We're we're trying to build a consensus to allow monks to vote. Let's bring in somebody who still reasonably believes they should. Only at that point do we then, you know, put our crosshairs directly on Parliament or on the on the Election Commission of Bhutan, and say, here is here is the conversation. Um, it is your job to either adjust. Law to this conversation, or to tell us why not. Mm. And if the answer, and if it becomes irreconcilable, that's why we vote. Mm. Right? I mean, that's, that's one of the wonders of democracy and one of the wonders of a responsible mm. civil service. Mm. Um, you know, eventually uh, that becomes, if, it, if that's big enough, right. eventually that becomes, you mm. know, the Karma Futso party for giving the vote to monks. <laughs> and you guys get your 16 seats in parliament, or your 45 or whatever it might be. And you get, you know, you change the law. But that, in my mind, is a last ditch. Mm. You know, that is really the violent part of democracy, where it was, throw the guys who disagree with us out, and replace the guys who agree with us. It really should be that by the time you approach Parliament, because of these conversations, because of these ever-iterating and improving conversations, the parliamentarians have already seen you coming from 10 miles away. Mm. You know, they've heard it from their friends, they've heard it from their wives, from their children, from their from their neighbors and so when you finally show up and say, hi, I have a report, they say, what took you so long? Mm. You know, we, we're waiting for this. So that's, that's the practical. Part. That is, mm. let's not rush to parliament with our, with our half thought out ideas and say, you know, give monks the vote right now or, or we'll vote you out in the <coughs> next
0: election. It's, have that conversation and then mm. let, it, let it bubble up. Mm. Although the conversation can go on forever, um, I, um, I want to bring in a slight you know, spiritual, philosophical aspect to this conversation, as we uh, always do. So, I'm uh, uh, a cultural scholar, I most of the time teach Buddhism as a, a profession. When we look at the proliferation of laws in a modern society or a postmodern society, To me, that also reflects the decline of the common good, the basic human good that you mentioned in the beginning. And pre-modern Bhutanese had a very strong belief in the law of karma, the natural law, not the natural law of Aquinas, but law of karma. And this belief in natural law of karma and sikh is moral integrity, that is what has managed to keep the society in order. Uh, and then we had the belief in the the territorial deities and the buddhas and whatnot who would deliver justice without any miscarriage but today we are substituting some of these spiritual values and beliefs with the more written concrete legal systems what's your take on that how can we sort of uh, combine these two effectively well
2: i think if we're not combining them we're not doing anything effectively Mm. okay so that's that's the first response is Tadamzi and the concept of obedience and of uh, a common understanding of what is right and what is wrong has to be represented in every campfire. Okay. Now, I disagree that too many laws is a reflection of our diversion from the uh, common good. I would say it is a reflection of the fact that life is getting more complicated. Okay. And so, you know, concepts like... A universal good in Buddhism, or a universal good in Roman Catholicism. And once upon a time, the Pope in Rome appointed every king in Europe, and they all said yes, sir, and nobody questioned this. You know, once upon a time, people thought that the Bible had every answer for morality and legalism and so on and so forth. Life gets more complicated, and um, as people travel, as people engage in very differentiated lives. You know, we're not all farmers anymore. We're not all uh, staying in the same village that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were in. The story gets muddled. The story gets, gets both confused, but also changed in the retelling. And so that we write laws. And this is what I meant before when I said that the law must follow social development. We write laws. Not to say that this is universally true for the rest of time, forever and ever. We write laws to say at one moment in time, 2001 or 2008 or 2011 or whenever we did it, Mm. there was for one brief shining moment agreement on what is right and what is wrong. We are putting a flag down to remind ourselves of what was right at that moment. Mm. And if we have to pull that flag up later and say, and this was what was right eight years later, Mm. Uh, then, then let's do it. But... But the proliferation of laws simply says that there was a proliferation of discussion, a proliferation of people saying, you know, with, with all of the foreign direct investment coming into Bhutan, to now we've never felt the need for a water act. We've never felt the need uh, because Bonism plus Buddhism plus, you know, some mm. Bhutaneseism um, has always told us how to behave around the trees or the water or whatever. Well, the conversation got muddled because people like me showed up and said, hey, nice tree. Can I, can I have that tree? Nice mountain. Can I have that mountain? Mm-hmm. And so the Bhutanese conversation, ideally, the Bhutanese then said, well, this guy wants to use that tree, and he's offering us an awful lot of money. Mm-hmm. So we need to have some rules so that we don't lose our way. Mm-hmm. We want to put a flag down and say, the world is changing, but well, we, we will go this far and no further. Mm-hmm. You know, the Constitution, you know, we will go 60% and no further. Um, in terms of forest cover. Um, That is a a flag that was planted at that moment, at that constitutional moment, to say, we know the world is changing. His Majesty has told us that the world is opening up and that we are never going back to the way things are. So let us record at this moment in time for ourselves and for our children, our children's children, what we around this table, all seven lakhs of us at the time, believed to be this far and no further. believed our common heritage and our common knowledge. Mm. So, so I don't think that too much law
0: is in itself a problem. Mm. Thank you. Um, we have uh, already reached the end of our uh, time. But mm, one last question before I ask the audience to share their questions. Um, we <laughs> often ask the guests to share any inspirational, any motivational sort of tips or techniques or habits you have to help the audience, particularly the young audience, uh, be sharp and on top of things, Um, especially in this case, if you have any advices you can share with us Bhutanese on how we should be engaged citizens in developing a good uh, legal system here. Well, sure.
2: Um, I don't know that anybody has anything to tell the Bhutanese. Um, uh, It is, again, your own path. Um, I will say, in terms of staying motivated, um, one of the nice things about the way that I've described this conversation, the conversation itself is quite motivating. I find this, what we're doing right here, to be incredibly energizing. Um, and I'm taking notes as you're going on to say, "Oh, well, I have no answer for that one. I should go look that up later. and, and I need to talk to my torts class tomorrow about, uh, about that question you just asked, or maybe even put it on the exam. Um, <laughs> Now they're going back to the tape. The um, uh, no. So the so the first thing is, if something bugs you, talk about it. You know, don't complain, don't don't force your ideas or whatever. But say, you know what? Um, you know, the fact that laws tend to breed litigation, mm-hmm. and bugs me and it tells me that we've got too many laws in Bhutan because then we're going to have these law students running around suing people and so on and so forth and boy that's really, I, I hate that. Professor, could you please tell me if I'm completely wrong about that or, or Dasha, could you please tell me you know, what your experience is or Professor, you know, this, this, this. Get those off your chest um, because number one, as I found out today, a lot of times, unless you tell me, I don't know that that's, that's a concern to you. And number two, it may also be a concern to no. me. Or number three, it may be something that I've thought deeply about and I possibly have something so, yeah. to call me. Yeah. So I think
0: that's, you yeah. know, keep One, talking. Keep talking. So, let's talk. Any questions? <laughs> Hi Michael, Dr. Karma. My name is Sana Pelvin and I'm a tech entrepreneur.
4: Um, and from my experience, I've seen that in the context of Japan, a lot of people use law and regulation as an excuse for indecision, mm-hmm. and um, and the reason I say this is I feel that especially in the civil service, the credit you get for making a good decision is a lot smaller than the repercussions you get from making a bad one. Mm-hmm. And so when someone like me comes in with a with an idea that has never been done here before, nobody wants to make any decision on on anything. And just to give you. Just to set the context, like it's been a year and eight months since I applied for a business registration. Very simple tech company that does that around blockchain, decentralized data, and because nobody understands what this is, it always bounces back to say we don't have laws around this, we don't have anyone who understands this, and how can we trust that you're not doing anything illicit and illegal? So, I have always wondered whether there is room for sandboxing laws in Bhutan, especially. Um, where, if we want to really entertain um, the uh, really entertain the uh, philosophies that we say that we want new ideas, new entrepreneurs to come up, then is there a way that we can make um, create an environment where someone can <coughs> execute and work and try all of these ideas while at the same time make sure that a wild entrepreneur like me doesn't go broke? <laughs> Thank you.
2: So, number one, I have to admit, I have no idea what blockchain is either. <laughs>
0: but,
2: no, no, I mean, blockchain is, is like plastics. It's, you know, this is, we're gonna, I'm going to open a bakery, but it's going to be a blockchain bakery. Um, uh, so I share their fear and concern about this, this magical uh, thing you have got going on. So, um, sandboxing. I mean, the, the problem with sandboxing in law, which I love, by the way, Um, is that law is always done with live ammunition, right? We can't go out and have a paintball contest with respect to uh, corporate registration or uh, crypto security laws or whatever, because as long as you and I both know that it's pretend, we're never gonna find out whether the law actually works or not, right? So we can't sandbox law in the way that we can sandbox, say, entrepreneurship ideas or whatever, um, because you and I will always, in the back of our minds, know that this is fake. It's only when we release the law into the wild, so to speak, that we find out whether it works or not. Mm-hmm. Now, the space that you're in, entrepreneurship, and especially tech entrepreneurship, the law is always going to lag well, well, well behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, there are examples from my childhood, um, uh, not my childhood, uh, but from the 1990s when the internet first came along. and. United States federal courts would have arguments about whether for certain purposes of commerce and criminal law the internet was more like mailboxes or more like tubes and why does it matter? That's where you're at right now and I have to say I envy you because in those few times in my life where I've been there, where I'm, I'm sort of standing on an island by myself and saying, this regulator has no idea what to do with me, this regulator has no idea what to do with me, my investors have no idea what to do with me, that's when I know I'm doing something really cool. Now, that being said, let's, let's talk offline. Let's, let's, let's and, and talk to my students and my colleagues offline as well. Um, this is exactly the kind of question that we're trying to train each other on the faculty and our students. Fix, you should have a guide in this process who shares your entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. and can say, Okay, we're gonna have to bash our heads against this wall. Or, Okay, I know somebody we can have a very creative conversation with somebody at start building this consensus around maybe not sandboxing law but sandboxing industries where you know we create a new law that is out there in the wild that says we're, we're putting protective fences around blockchain, whatever that is, to keep. Blockchain safe from the rest of the economy, but to keep the rest of us safe from blockchain as well, because it sounds like something you can catch diseases from. <laughs> um, and so I wouldn't say we need to sandbox the law, I would say we need to sandbox your industry. And and that is something that, that Bhutan has been very good at in the past. You know, Bhutan has effectively sandboxed the tourism industry for decades.
0: Did I answer your question? Yes, oh. yes thank you. But the, um, the legal experts have to start thinking about these things. Uh, and um, um, with the tech entrepreneurs, I can imagine their frustration. We are always uh, moving very fast. The legal system, as you said, is lagging behind terribly. But they are good examples of where they have also been very dynamic. Like in the case of porn- pornography, it was initially videos made on computer, which they very quickly amended to. Uh, recordings made on any electronic devices. So I think one can be very dynamic
2: to But is a recording of a virtual ten year old child where no children were involved, is that child pornography? (laughs) Well no I'm saying I'm saying we've moved fast, but to our friends in the tech industry, the law was still incredibly slow. You know there were there were different forms of pornography electronically years before the law caught up. And now, while we're patting ourselves on the back and saying, hey, we finally figured out how to stop pornography on Instagram and Snapchat and whatever, the bad guys we're trying to get have said, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Snapchat is so 2016. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) So the law always lags behind it. And so it is people like you that force us to be better. (laughs) Good afternoon,
4: Professor You mentioned earlier that there were this and this this many acts and laws. So, yeah, Bhutan does have a lot of good laws on paper, but often we observe that there are so many loopholes that people can use to get around those laws and still do a lot of illegal, you know, activities in the construction uh, area or even in the mining. So, how do we, you know, encourage people to? stop doing that, and follow the good laws that we have on paper. Because it's really frustrating when you have this small group of people who are very obedient and follow the rules, but then on the other hand, you see another group that's able to take advantage of their knowledge and, you know, make
2: a lot of money out of it, too. (laughs) It's a great question, Um, uh, so thank you for that. Um, the first point I'll make, which does not at all answer your question, but is another one of these big sweeping things I get to say as a professor, is a law that we are unable to implement is by definition not a good law. Okay. Bhutan has some fantastic environmental legislation um, on environmental impact assessments on what happens when you try to throw a giant law school campus into Pangisaparo, um, so on and so forth. Um, that, that looks wonderful as you say on paper. Well, okay what you've just told me is it's not actually wonderful okay if, if, if it looks wonderful on paper but we either cannot implement it or the loopholes are there and nobody who matters is actually paying attention to it, then that is not a good law and that to me then says let's go back to our conversation and say what are we actually trying to attain and let's do it in a way that bhutan can actually implement um, we see this with the international human rights instruments i'm sorry i keep pointing at this part of the room when i mean u.n house um, the, um, we, we talk about uh, the International Human Rights Conventions. Well, they are wonderful, and I agree with Dr. Karma on, on that point. That being said, an international human rights commitment that Bhutan makes, that it cannot fulfill, either because of implementation, or reporting, or monitoring, or whatever that Bhutan simply can't do, is not a good international human rights obligation for Bhutan at this time. So I would say we need to go back and look at the laws. And you've seen, you know, there's been some very thoughtful pieces in the various newspapers from the uh, the construction industry, from the CDB, from other places, saying even those of us who are the good guys don't know whether we're in compliance with the law or not. It has gotten so complicated, it has gotten so everything that that even when we're trying to follow the law, we either don't know whether we're doing it or not, or it's so expensive that we just go along with what everybody else is doing. That, to me, is a red flag that says we should be getting some construction people here around this table. We should be getting some clients around this table. We should get some people with your perspective around this table and say, what result do we actually want? And, and let's forget where, how we got here, but, but what are we seeing that's, that's troublesome and how do we fix it? And how do we fix it with Bhutanese resources?
5: Thank you, Michael. I, um, I really enjoyed your talk. And I just have a question, actually, following on from what you just said. So I think it's, it's great to hear about how this, this whole thing, uh, process, must be indigenous and must come from within that empire. Totally agree with that. But when you just now said that there should be um, a law that cannot be implemented is not a good law, um, I'm just wondering, does that not place too much of an emphasis on generating Progress through conversations alone, whereas there may be scope within around the campfire for somebody to be the outlier and to say, actually, let's do things this way. And it may be hard to do that initially, so the implementation may be a problem. But then, you know, eventually we overcome those challenges. I'm thinking of, you know, legislation around, I mean, uh, laws like you know around anti-smoking or whatever, you know, things that that come out of not out of those conversations, come <coughs> out of an in. in Out of an initiative that wants to create some change. So I wonder if that's just too strong a formulation. But I loved everything else you said. And one very minor point, just as somebody, um, you know, just from a gender point of view. Parliamentarians hearing from their wives, but also from their husbands. You're absolutely said right. From their wives. You're right. absolutely <laughs> right. I was so. And we go to the tape. More No, no. Over. We'll go to
2: the tape. I was so good about gender neutral up to that point. But yes. you're absolutely <laughs> right. You got me on that one. I deeply apologize. Husbands, wives, partners, spouses, for that matter, you know, house housemates. At any rate, no, no, and, and, I, and I hope what's come across is that we shouldn't be choosing our campfires solely based upon people that we agree on 100% of important things about. You know, our campfires are oftentimes chosen for us, um, where we live, where we grew up, who our parents are, what industry we work in. And we may agree as a group on nothing. But... a a significant, a critical mass of us may agree on this 40% of things. This critical mass may agree on this 40%. And I hope, and many people in this room know me, I hope I am usually the outlier here in Bhutan. And logically I should be, because I share no common heritage, I I don't share a common religion. And I hope that I am the person who is never quite kicked out of the campfire but always saying hey have you thought about maybe this and sometimes those are universal human rights other times they are me (laughs) sitting up here and saying have you thought about ignoring the fundamental you know universal human rights people and doing it going your own way (coughs) um so no i should hope that there is always a place for that person and that much to our surprise and it's always to our surprise sometimes (coughs) that person carries the day you know we have our consensus we have everything else and that person (laughs) says Excuse me, international criminal law, you know, the work of the work of the great Sharif Bassiuni and others on creating an international criminal court. Out of whole cloth, you know, over thirty years of back and forth. And there was no consensus until there was. And that is sort of your global campfire. That's the campfire of states. Um so yes, there there always must be outliers and sometimes they surprise us and, and, and they win. And then all of us Aspire to what they've just talked us into.
6: Uh, I very much agree. Very much agree with uh, what you've said about uh, the importance of the campfires and the discussions that have to go on there. One of the great concerns I have, uh, and I've seen a number of instances in my 10 years in Bhutan, is severe restrictions on not letting anyone into the campfire. And uh, my first encounter was. Uh, I know something that you're all quite familiar with, the Financial Services Act of 2011. Uh, it was designed entirely by the RIA. There was literally a two-day comment period and it zipped off to Parliament who didn't have a staff to review. it. The campfire was closed. Um, you find a similar thing in, in um, you know, various arms of government, uh, basically writing policies that have the force of law but no discussion. My question to, to you is, how can we open up the campfires? Right. So,
2: and, and we don't have to single out the RMA, we don't have to single out the financial sector, anything, because those of us in this room, and we've heard from the, from the tech entrepreneurs, and if we went around, virtually every ministry, virtually every department has this problem. And so one of those conversations, if we want to talk about good laws that Bhutan has, that aren't implemented very well. We can talk about the RIA procedure for, for laws and for new regulations. We can talk about the compulsory multiple public comment periods uh, for any law that hits the books. There is, what you are describing anyway, is a disconnect between a mandate to you know, the agency to fix the problem and fix it now, and the constitutional and statutory mandate that every civil servant, which I'm not, and every public servant, which I am in Bhutan, has, has sworn to um, that we must take public comment into account. And so that then becomes, if we want to get very strange with this, a meta campfire, where we are having a campfire about campfires. And we are bringing in people from RMA, from MFA, from OAG, and saying, and by the way, this is your statutory requirement for public comment period, but number two, this is how we could have avoided, you know, we convinced them by saying, and you wouldn't be going through these problems now if, as a matter of course, you would be asking us these things ahead of time. Um, I know from my limited experience in in a limited number of sectors, that by and large, the civil servants, the DGs, the dashos, the Yongs, the ong dashos. (laughs) open to those conversations. I mean, they often don't know much like much like our conversation here and our conversations here, mm. they often don't know what to do with that eagerness, but they know they are falling short of some of their obligations and they, they certainly know from the people complaining to them every day, including tech entrepreneurs, they certainly know that the law that they're
0: enforcing often falls short. So let's have that conversation. I agree. Well, if there are no other questions, uh, it's well well over an hour. Uh, I'd like to close this with my final question to you. And that is a question that we pose as a ritual almost. You've been offered uh, as a token of gratitude for being our guest, uh, two titles from the New Yorker best uh, sellers list, or any other books that you choose. What two titles did you choose and why?
2: I've got a prop. (coughs) Mm So I chose one book that I own and uh, or, or have owned and have read and one book that I, I've never read and that I've always meant to, so I'm taking this as an opportunity to read it. Um, the first is a very famous book um, that won just about every award out there, it's by Douglas Hofstadter. It's called Gödel, Escher, and Bach. It, it is a, I won't even say interdisciplinary, it is a pan-disciplinary analysis of how thinking about things as systems. And thinking about societies and problems as systemic rather than as isolated incidents changes entirely changes the way we think about problem-solving and entirely changes the way we think about ourselves. Um, I first read it 20 years ago I have not read it since and I realized when I was asked to pick two books that I would really like to have a copy. So so that's the first one. Um, The second is um, a book called The Power to Transform Leadership that Brings Learning and Schooling to Life by Dr. Stephanie Pace Marshall. Um, as an educator here in Bhutan, um, I think transforms a very powerful word and my goal for every one of my students and my colleagues uh, at, in Bhutan is to transform and hopefully to transform for the better. Now this book is especially important to me because of the name at the bottom, Dr. Stephanie Pace Marshall. When I was 13 years old, I was sent off to a nerd school. Uh, I was sent off to a boarding school in mathematics and science. But they only picked the top nerds, the nerdiest nerds uh, to attend. And Dr. Marshall was the founding director of that school. She was one of my earliest mentors uh, of my, uh, my adolescent period. Um, and she, she was one of the leading women in America in STEM education, even before it was called STEM education. Uh, and she's now, she, just, she was just here in Bhutan about a month ago uh, and I missed her because I was out of the country, uh, but she has since become a thought leader in how education and language intera- interact, how we talk about learning, how we talk to learn, and how we talk to teach. Mm. And so this is what I've been meaning to read for a long time and I hope Dr. Marshall isn't watching this on tape anywhere because I told her like five years ago that I had read this book and that I bought it. <laughs> but I have it now.
0: Well, she might be uh, watching our session in the future, because uh, what uh, we have discussed today will go online uh, very soon. Um, um, Thank you very much for a wonderful conversation. Um, And thank you all for joining us in this campfire. I'm going to call Bhutan Dialogues a campfire. A campfire where we don't only have outliers, but We would like all the campfire members to stretch their boundaries, to expand their extent. Um, And I hope you have uh, learned about law today and managed to expand your uh, intellectual boundaries. I, again, as a ritual, end this session always with a piece of uh, traditional Bhutanese Buddhist wisdom. Uh, For today, I have Nagarjuna, one of the greatest philosophers of Mahayana Buddhism, who basically states the very obvious and a lot of the Buddhists here would be familiar with his uh, a book called Shtruleka, Letter to a Friend. And in that he says, "Timni judam Tim, just a plain flaw, whichever way you want to translate this. So Tim is said to be the foundation of uh, all that is good, just as the earth is the base for all things. Um, stationary or moving. With that, thank you very much for joining us at Budhan Taros. Enjoy the refreshments and see you back again here for the afternoon session. Good